Ephesians chapter 5, I'll begin at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Let me pray as we hear God's word that his spirit would apply it to our lives. Father, we thank you for the, the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ loved us enough to give himself up for us, to sacrifice his own life for us, for our forgiveness, to make us holy and blameless, to redeem us from our sins. And so, Lord, I pray that you would apply that truth to our hearts, that you would transform our relationships, that we would see the, the hope of the gospel and the loving sacrifice of our Savior. And so, Lord, for those who, who are here with us this morning that doubt the goodness of this gospel, because of the struggles and trials in life, that you would offer them hope and comfort. Lord, for those who doubt the, the truth of this gospel, that doubt the reality of, of Jesus' work, Lord, that you would show them by your power the glorious gospel of our Savior, the one who gave himself up for us. So, Father in heaven, we come praying in the name of Jesus. Amen. Who's in charge here? Who's in charge? It's the kind of question that we might ask in times of trouble. We need somebody to step up and solve a problem. It's the kind of question that you might hear in a, in a police investigation show, a drama on TV. Who's in, who's in charge here? We need to make some decisions. It's the type of question, perhaps, that you need answered in a business meeting with a new client. Who's in charge? Who's going to make the final decision? How do we move forward? Who's in charge? It's the kind of question that makes sense in a military context to know what the orders are, where to, where to go. And it sounds like the question Paul is answering for us in Ephesians 5. Who's in charge here? But, but really, perhaps the better way for us to phrase the question because it is a question he's answering for us, but perhaps the better way to phrase the question, instead of who's in charge, who's the servant here? Because authority in this passage, the authority of a husband, because the comparison is made to Christ, authority in this passage is presented in terms of sacrifice and service. I mean, the command... Uh, the command we saw last week in verse 22, given to wives, wives, submit to your husbands. We see it here in this passage is that the husband is the, that we, we saw last week, the husband is the head of the wife. 
because Christ is the head of the church. But, but the command that's given to husbands is not, husbands, rule over your wives. Husbands, demand their, demand their submission to your authority. It's not, husbands, exercise your headship. What is the command? What is it? Husbands, love your wives. Because the context here is a context of sacrifice. It's the context of Christ himself. Isn't that, look, look, at, look at verse 25. This is, a, this is a powerful verse. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the example of Christ. Just as Christ loved the church, just as Christ gave himself up for her. That's the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. That's what we sing in our songs of worship, that Jesus gave himself on the cross, in my place condemned he stood. Jesus died so that I could be forgiven. And so with that as the comparison then, husbands, how much of a sacrifice for you, for your wife, would be too big? How big of a sacrifice would, where can you draw the line and say, well, I mean, God doesn't really want me to serve in that kind of way. Now, thankfully, few of you will ever be in a position where you would be, be challenged with that question, would you give your life for hers? But that's exactly what Christ is calling you to do. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for you. That means in every one of the, those moments where you think, should I serve here or should I be served? The answer is always, this is my opportunity as a husband to serve, to give my life for her. But you, but you see, it's not, it's not merely the, the example of Christ. Christ himself is the power at work in you as a husband. Because how does the analogy continue in, in verses 26 and 27? What has Jesus Christ done for the church? What does his death accomplish for us as Christians, for us as a, as a community of believers? What did Jesus do? Look at verse 26. We see the power of Jesus Christ because Jesus, through his death, made the church holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, presenting her to himself as a radiant church. Do you see the power of Jesus Christ to make his church holy, to, to transform her? And so, husbands, when you think of, of what does it mean for me to, to love and serve my wife, you're pursuing her holiness, drawing her closer to Christ. And so there is never an opportunity for you to say, well, this is what I demand. I'm going to put my foot down and I'm going to draw the line right here and you will obey. That's never the response. Yes, there are times that you, as the servant leader in your home, have to make difficult decisions, but always for her good, for the good of your family, always to draw her closer to Christ. Your role is to make your wife holy, not in the redemptive sense of what Jesus has done, but in providing her access and opportunity to Christ through the, the washing with water, that, that image of cleansing, through the word, the word, the good news of the gospel proclaimed. You are a, a gospel preacher in your home, in your family. You are the one who, who brings your wife closer to God through his word. See, and you're showing her to be, to be a radiant bride. See, what, 
when, when we go to weddings, we, we expect the bride to be there at the center, to be the one dressed in white, the one for, for whom all of the plans have been made. But, but our marriage to Christ doesn't start that way. Our marriage starts with our filthiness, our foolishness, and yet Christ is the one who redeems us. Christ is the one who transforms us. Because do you, do you want to see what, what love looks like? Look to Jesus. Now, when I have, have opportunity to, to perform a wedding, I, I steal, and I probably stole this from my dad or, or another preacher, but at the, at the rehearsal, usually the night before with, with family and close friends gathered. Now, the, the family, they have the good seats at a wedding, but that means there's, there's one moment, because they're close to the front, but at one moment, they actually are in the worst seats in the house, right? That moment when the bride first steps into the room. So if they waste their time by turning around and looking backwards, they're not going to really see much. So this is what I tell families to do at the rehearsal. You'll see her when she walks down the aisle. Don't look to her first. Look at him. Watch his reaction to her. You want to see how beautiful the bride is? Look to the groom. Look to his reaction. It's his love. And that's what Paul is saying. You want to see how beautiful the church is. Look to the reaction, the response, the love of Jesus Christ. Church, do you want to know how valuable, how loved you are? Look at what Jesus has done. He gave himself for you. He has made you holy. He's cleansed you. He's announced the gospel to you. He's redeemed you so that you are without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless, dressed in the beauty of Christ's righteousness. That's the hope of the gospel. And that's the power of Christ then at work in believers, in husbands. Because remember, husbands, this command to love your wives is, is flowing out of that, that, that overarching command back in, in verse 18 of this chapter, where we were commanded, be filled with the Spirit. Each one of the commands through the, through the rest of the book then is, is, is linked to that command. Be filled with the Spirit. Where's your power for loving your wife? Not just in how great a guy you are, but in how great a Savior you have. You are filled with His Spirit, empowered by Him. You are the one who has been radically transformed. You have been cleansed. You have been redeemed. You have been rescued. You have been dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Now show that righteousness through sacrificially loving her. And so your role as a husband is to love your wife for her spiritual growth, your marriage is, is not merely about making you happy. It's, it's really not about that at all. Your marriage is about making her holy. Pursuing love as Christ loved you. But, but we notice Paul, Paul continues. We, we, are, we are called as husbands to love, not simply in response to the love of Christ, but, but also as we love ourselves. Look at, look at what Paul says in, in verse 28. He, he comes back to this, to this main command, to husbands, love your wives. He says in verse 28, In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, at, at first reading, that seems, seems to, to not be in line with what he just said. He just said, love sacrificially as Christ loved. And now it almost sounds like he's saying the opposite of that. Now love selfishly because you're going to get something out of it. It's basically like being good to yourself. But, but that's, that's not really what Paul is saying. He's, he's really using that biblical image that the way we love others is the way we instinctively already love ourselves. I mean, in our confession of sin, you heard the, the second greatest commandment. 
comes from the, the book of Leviticus, where we, where we are called by God to love your neighbor as yourself. Or think of Jesus' command to us, that golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. See, true love is not, not selfish. You're not doing it merely for what you get out of it. You're, you're, there's a recognition here, though. What, what Paul is saying is, after all, verse 29, no one ever hated his own body but feeds and cares for it. Instinctively, when you're hungry, you respond to that need. And so when your wife is in need, you will respond just as quickly, just as immediately, with a tender care. The way you would care for yourself, that's how you were to care for her. It's not a selfishness. It, it, it's showing us the immediacy, the, the instinctiveness of what love, sacrificial love, should look like. And, and in some sense, then, this is showing us, showing us the, the, even the self-care, the self-discipline of, of a marriage relationship. Just as husbands, I told you, your, your marriage is meant to make your wife holy. Here, what, what we're seeing is your marriage is also meant to make you holy. Just as you care for yourself, just as you discipline yourself, just as you follow after Christ, so you too will be made holy by your own marriage. And those compassionate words, are it's, it's not merely a utilitarian statement in verse 29 you know, of, well, you know, I've got to eat, I've got to care for myself, and so I guess I've got to do it for her too. No, it's, it's not merely the, the utility there. It's not, it's not grudgingly, but it's because there's a need that, that has to be met, and I have the, the opportunity to meet this need. We are united in this marriage. Our purposes are, are linked together. Our goals, our desires are linked. And so, so for me to find out what I need here, I actually need to know her wants, her desires, her needs. And so actually, most of the time when push comes to shove and, and there's differing opinions, what does sacrificial leadership look like? You know, it's not merely kind of the flipping of a coin and like, well, she got her way last time. Let's see who gets their way this time. No, that's, that's a, an abdication of power. And it's, it's certainly not, well, I'm in charge, so we do it my way. No, what does sacrificial leadership look like? Most of the time, it's going to mean her needs, your family's needs, are higher than your own. You're loving her as you love yourself. You're loving her in fulfillment of that, that great commandment. You're loving her following after the commands of Jesus Christ. And so most of the time, you're going to find a way to sacrificially meet her needs not your own, because your needs, your desires aren't in view here. How are you to love? Just as Christ loved the church. How are you to love? In the, in the same way that you would care for yourself, you're to care for her. And, and, and then Paul makes this point in verse 30, where, he, where he, he again comes back in verse 29 to this comparison to Christ, that just as Christ feeds the church, just as Christ cares for the church, that we are to care for our wives. But, but then verse 30 just says, this is not merely an ideal that you're, you're pointing toward. This is the reality that you live in now. What does he say in verse 30? For we are members of Christ's body. It's just this plain, bald theological declaration. You belong to Christ. And so the reality that you're working toward in your marriage is, is what is really, truly there. That you both belong to to Christ. That your faith in Christ means you are united to Christ. See, our union with Christ is not merely this, this ideal. 
not merely this like mythical standard. It's, it's the reality in which we live. Christ loved us, gave himself for us. Christ sacrificed himself. And so we are to love as Christ loved. Now, the Wall Street Journal recently carried a report by Mark Regnerus. He's a University of Texas researcher. And, and one of the, the recent college graduates his, his team interviewed, this was a question about the decline of marriage in American culture. Fewer people are married today. People wait longer to get married. Marriage is, is not as highly prized in American culture. And, and so one of the recent college graduates his team interviewed reported that he's pretty sure he wants to get married at some point, but just not soon. He's not ready to get married yet. And, and when asked why, why wait to get married? This is, this is how he responded. Because I'm not done being stupid yet. I still want to go out and have sex with a million girls. Now, the statement comes from Kevin, but I'm glad to report that's not his real name. His name was changed because I don't think he represents Kevin's terribly well. But Kevin says he's figured it out. He's figured out how to get what he wants, how to get sex without any actual commitments, without anything demanded of him. He strategically withholds what he thinks the woman wants in this relationship, some kind of commitment, some kind of sacrifice for him, until he gets what he wants. Now, sociologists might have, have, a, have a series of reasons for the decline of marriage. They might look at, at lower wages of men today compared to previous generations, except that in places where men have higher wages, even today, they're not getting married any sooner. You might look at just the fact that, well, men are kind of pigs and unwilling to make any real commitment. But, but what these sociologists are reporting in the Wall Street Journal is that, that there's a reason. That, that, yes, men like Kevin are jerks. But this is, this is the way the research is presented in the Wall Street Journal. This is their conclusion. The reason for the decline in marriage? Sex has become rather cheap. Actually, the, the researchers simplify it by saying it's, it's not simply that, that men are unwilling to make a commitment, that men are unwilling to, to, to live lives of fidelity in relationships. The, the, the researchers actually boil it down much more simply. Why is marriage in decline? Because sex is cheap, because birth control culturally has separated marriage from a family commitment. And secondly, sex is cheap because online porn is everywhere. Now, that's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking that, that culturally men would have such a view of relationships, a view of sexual gratification and desire that, that's separated from any meaningful relationship. Now, the, yes, people still aspire in our culture to get married at some point, but they no longer expect any kind of self-control to be part of relationships. And, and the researchers, all they're really asking for for men is to make small sacrifices in a relationship, like treating a woman well, respecting her interests. Near the conclusion of the article, this is, this is how the researchers summarize things. Such small instances of self-sacrificing love may sound simple. 
all they were asking is that men not treat women like dirt, that men listen to women. Such small instances of self-sacrificing love may sound simple, simple, but they're less likely to develop when relationships are founded on cheap sex. See, culturally, we can't take the smallest of steps because we've distorted relationships so radically. We've looked at relationships as, what can I get from this? We've reduced marriage, we've reduced sex to, to what will make me happy in this moment. But, but Ephesians 5 is offering a much deeper view of self-sacrificing love, a love of servant leadership, a life committed entirely to the good of the other, vows, marriage vows that endure, a love that gives rather than takes, sex in the context of our one flesh union in Christ. See, and so marriage then becomes a place where the gospel can be revealed. Look at, look at how, how Paul continues. Look back at verse 31, this quotation from Genesis 2. And we, and we looked at, at these verses last week as well. This quotation from the very beginning, from the first wedding, the, the relationship between Adam and Eve and the perfection of the original creation. We, 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 hear, we hear this. Verse 31, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. United together spiritually, the physical relationship being a, a commitment, a, a, a visible expression of the spiritual commitment, the relational commitment that you've made, not something that is cheap, but something that is valued, protected, and loved, a one flesh relationship. You see, the reason that, that sex outside of this God's plan for marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime, the reason that it's, that it's cheap in our culture is because on the one hand, it, it, it's everything. It's everywhere. It's, it's all-consuming all for guys like Kevin in, in commercials, in, in entertainment. It's everywhere. But, but then it's on the same, at the same time so cheap that you just give it away. You see, in a, in a lifelong, committed marriage relationship, sex becomes something beautiful and sacred. The, the, the things you say with your body match what you've said with your vows. And so sex in God's plan is this beautiful relationship. But, but notice, notice how Paul won't even just let us stop with the relationship between husbands and wives. What does he do in verse 32? He says, wait a minute, remember, the, the thing I'm really talking about here, yes, there are commands to wives, there are commands to husbands, but remember the thing I'm really talking about is the love of Jesus Christ for his church. He, he kind of interrupts the, the whole line of thinking again in verse 32. This is a profound mystery. And, and remember, in, particularly in the book of Ephesians, mystery doesn't mean, ooh, there are some clues, let's figure out the solution. No, mystery is, is that, that moment right before the curtains open at, at the, the beginning of the play, and, and you're going to get to see what's behind it. Mystery in, in, in Ephesians is that which is revealed, the plan of God, God's gospel plan. The curtains have been thrown back. The mystery is revealed. You know what God's plan is. And, and, and Paul explicitly says in verse 32, I'm not merely talking about husbands and wives. I'm talking about Christ and the church. You are one flesh union. The union of, of husband to wife is meant to be a picture of the union of Christ and his church. And so marriage is a gospel opportunity. In your, in your marriage, you have the opportunity 
to apply the gospel to yourself, to apply the gospel to your spouse, to announce the good news of, of Christ's forgiveness. And so as, as one author says, the, the wife puts her husband's will before her own. She puts his will before her own, and the husband puts his wife's interests before his own. He puts her desires, her needs before his own. Marriage is this gospel opportunity. But it's also a gospel reminder to us that, that we are desperate for a relationship. Even the best of marriages don't match this, this perfect relationship that Christ has given us. And so not merely for those of us who, who aren't yet married or, or, or no longer married, is there this longing, even, even within a marriage, even within a good marriage, there is this deeper longing that you and I have. And there's a reason we have it, because, because Paul is saying the, the deeper longings of your heart are for your relationship with Christ. Your marriage is always meant to point to something bigger, to Jesus himself. And so do you see then the gospel opportunity that you have? Husbands, you have the opportunity to show forth the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ to your wife and to your children. Families, wives, husbands, you have the opportunity to show forth the good news of the gospel to the world in a transformed relationship where you, where you love the other, you think of her interests, his needs, his will first. Marriage is an opportunity, a gospel opportunity for the world to see the sacrifice of Christ. So if we ask who's in charge, it's really the question who will serve? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, there are always a lot of people to thank on a wedding day, but the bride in Chicago had, had one person to thank above all others, a, a total stranger who had made this possible. That's how a CBS News story began last year. 27-year-old Heather Kruger was diagnosed with stage 4 liver disease. Doctors said she had mere months to live and she needed a liver transplant. Now, Chris Dempsey, the man she needed to thank on her wedding day, was a total stranger. He'd overheard a co-worker talking about this and he thought to himself, as an ex-Marine, hey, if I can help, I'm going to help. So he was tested and he was a match. After the transplant, Heather and Chris stayed close. So close, the news reporter tells us that she wanted him at the wedding. Well, he had to be there. And you see where it's going. You can't have a wedding without the groom. When Chris decided to give an organ to a random stranger, he had no idea he was saving the life of his own wife. A marriage relationship that begins with an act of self-sacrifice. I mean, don't you see? That's really the definition of marriage. Sacrifice for the holiness, for the good of the other. Your relationship with Christ began with his sacrifice, his love for you, husbands, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let me pray for us. Father, we rejoice in the hope of this gospel, 
the good news that Jesus is the Savior, the one who gave himself for us. And yet, Lord, we, we in hearing this, this announcement of hope, we, we struggle. We struggle as husbands with the commands that you have given to us, the commands to, to love our, our wives sacrificially. We struggle, some of us, with the longing for, for this kind of relationship, for a meaningful gospel relationship. And so, Lord, let us find our hope, our satisfaction in Christ. But, Father in heaven, I pray that you would empower us by the work of your Spirit, that you would empower us to live in a way that honors and glorifies you. Father, we rejoice in the hope of the gospel of Jesus, our Savior. So we come to this table to, to be strengthened, to be blessed, to be reminded of, of our Savior's sacrifice, of our Savior's love. Lord, we, we look forward to that day, that great wedding feast, when the church will be gathered, the church without spot or stain or wrinkle or blemish, the church perfected and purified by our Savior. So Lord, strengthen us in the hope of the gospel as we come in the name of Jesus, our Savior.